Morning, church. Welcome. Glad you're here and have chosen to come and worship with us. A uh, couple of quick things uh, before we get started. Ashley mentioned next week we're having an offering next week. We will be sharing in a great commissioned offering. Uh, you need to know that we're joining with uh, every other Alliance church across the country to share in that offering called Great Commission Sunday Offering. I just want to remind you, our denomination, the Christian Missionary Alliance, is a group that has made a decision. Now, we're not the only group, but we are one of the few of the groups that are out there that have made the decision that we are going to go in missions, in the world of missions, we're going to go to the places where most other groups are not going. <clears throat> we're going to go to the hardest reach people groups in the world. We're going, to, we're going to go to the places that are the most dangerous and the places that need the gospel, but no one is able or willing to go. Now, we're not the only group doing that, but we are one of the few that have decided that those are the places where we're going to go. There's lots of places that are wide open, full of uh, Christians and full of missionaries and full of organizations that are pumping resources, money, and people into those areas. We're part of a group that said we're going to go to the place where nobody wants, no one else wants to go. Your offering next week will go towards our goal of, uh, of giving 10% of our total budget, uh, uh, income budget, to the Great Commission Fund. Uh, our goal for this offering next week is $10,000, and we're partnering with a, a field named Paraguay. Uh, Paraguay is one of those mission fields, which is one of those difficult places. It's a place where other Alliance churches have not really partnered with them, and we're willing to do that. Our hope would be in the next year, 18 months, that we'll actually be sending groups there, uh, trips to Paraguay, teams to Paraguay to help them with different things. So I just want to give you that heads up again about that offering next week. And of course, it doesn't happen to happen next week. You can give online and do all in the other ways in which to give. I just wanted to give that little plug for the group that we're a part of. I'm, I'm glad to say we are part of a group willing to go to the places where other people don't want to go. And that's, uh, we're a part of that together. So I got to tell you before we get into this, so I have a birthday coming up this week and I'm going to be <clears throat> a little older than I was last year. <clears throat> but uh, you know how, you know, some people are always talking about they're tracking us on our phone. You know, they're listening to our conversation. I've got proof that it's happening. I haven't announced, I'm not on social media announcing birthday, whatever. I got three texts in the past 48 hours. The first one says, you're getting older. Are you still the man you used to be? <laughs> no, I'm not. Clearly, I'm not. So that's right. Second one says this. Second one, this is my text. This is a text, not an email. These are texts. So they got my number. This one says, this is from uh, Silver Singles. Yeah, yeah, that's real funny, yeah. <laughs> Silver singles asking me if I needed to help finding someone in my life. Uh, the last one was the most offensive where it just said, Scott, you're fat, we can help. Now, come on. <laughs> you know, that's coming to my phone. I mean, that should be sacred. But my, my worst or my most frightening moment was actually yesterday. So I went to my uh, granddaughter's fast pitch softball game. Uh, her first year playing, and I went to the game, and the, uh, the opposing team didn't show up. So they said, well, let's do it. We're going to inter-squad scrimmage, but we don't have enough people. We need some adults to play in the outfield. So I became right fielder. And uh, so I'm playing right field. And I don't, I mean, of course, I'm in my shirt, my shorts, and my T-shirt, and I had tennis shoes on. I did have a hat, thankfully, but, you know, that's it. There I am. And my whole time up there going, 
don't embarrass yourself. Don't embarrass yourself. Don't embarrass yourself. I mean, I want to say it was don't embarrass your granddaughter, but the truth of it is, it, don't embarrass me. And so I'm playing right field. Now, we didn't bat, so the adults didn't bat. There were three adults that played. Two of them left early. I'm the only one that went the whole nine yards here, the whole nine, the whole nine innings, or it wasn't nine innings, but the whole time. And so everyone's leaving. It's just me and the kids, and I'm out in right field. And I'm thinking, don't embarrass yourself. So I first want to say to you, I, no, I, we didn't hit, so no hits. But no errors. The ball came to me numbers of times, even though I'm praying, don't hit the ball to me, don't hit the ball to me. It still came to me, no errors, but the biggest successful moment I had was this, I didn't trip or fall once. I was pretty pretty proud of myself. My wife goes, well, how'd it go? I didn't trip. She goes, that's huge for you. That is, that's huge. That's huge. I got, I got through that. Hey, as we, started, as, we, as we started last week, we started our series, and I want to uh, continue in our series this morning as we're talking about the church. Um, now, uh, I, I got a, a note from one of our college students who's returned that said this. I had my wisdom teeth out, and she says that I may not have my wisdom teeth anymore, but I sure am a lot smarter after last week's sermon, a lot wiser after last week's sermon. So, see, last week, you, lo- you left here last week, like, really something else. And I'm going to build on that today and take what we learned last week in the introduction and start working towards some other thoughts here. Now, before we get into the sermon, let me give you something that makes no sense. Welcome to Essex Lions Church, where we're going to talk about things that make no sense. This makes no sense. Now, if you're an above average person, you'll get the answer to this next question. If you're not above average, you won't get it. But when I give you the background, you'll probably go, oh, yeah. So it's not something you might readily know, but some of you might. So here's the question. There are two historic crucifixions recorded in history. Two historic crucifixions. One, of course, the person of Jesus. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But there's a second crucifixion that is widely known and, I mean, probably better known, if you will, in one sense, than would be the story of, of Jesus and can you tell me the name of that person that was crucified historically and or the details or the story around that? Now, just pause for a moment. Think about it. Two, two very historic crucifixions and their stories. Do you know who the second one is? Now, the answer is Spartacus. So if you said Spartacus, you can feel good about yourself because you'd be above average. But if you said Spartacus and you're feeling proud of yourself for that, don't feel proud about that for very long. Because what that tells me is you've watched the movies, but you really don't know the history. You see, the movies of Spartacus actually have him being crucified. But if you know history, you'll know that they don't believe he was crucified, that everything that we know, he was killed in battle. But there's a reason why the story, let me give you two. So Spartacus was a slave actually a slave gladiator. He escaped from slavery as a slave, and he led a massive slave rebellion against Rome. Now, if you know some of the history there, you know that Rome was scared to death of this slave rebellion because there are millions of slaves in the Roman Empire, and if this thing catches on and all the slaves revolt, the Rome is done. So they are eager to put this uprising down. Uh, he led a, a massive number of, of slave soldiers in battle. He was eventually killed himself in battle. But there were 6,000 of his men that did not die in battle. Those 6,000 were arrested, and those 6,000 were crucified. If you've seen the Spartacus movies, they have him crucified in the movie, but he was not. But his 6,000 men were, and they were crucified in the most horrific way. Now, 
Crucifixion already is horrific. But what Rome did is this. He, they, they had them all crucified on the side of the road called the Appian Way. The Appian Way leading into, into Rome, the city of Rome, is a, is a main pedestrian thoroughfare that should be about 118 miles long. If you want to do the calculation, that would be a cross and a crucified soldier about every 100 feet for 100 plus miles. On top of that, they didn't take the bodies down. They left the bodies up for them to rot in the sun and for the birds to have their their heyday. And why would you do that? For an example. You put them out there and everybody that walks that way, and it's a major thoroughfare, you do that so everybody sees it and knows it. Now, it's interesting. The reason that we know about it and the detail is because Rome actually had historians. I mean, paid historians. They had people paid that all they did is write down history. Now, admittedly, if you're going to pay a historian to be your historian, your chances are they're they're going to write history in your favor. But in this case, there was really no favor. I mean, it's just the story. And all sorts of their historians recorded all of these details. You can go look up the history of Spartacus and the slave rebellion, and you'll find all sorts of details because it was well-known and well-documented. Now, the fact that we would know that story is not a mystery. Here's the mystery that makes no sense. How is it that a no-name carpenter living in what was considered at that time to be the worst place in the world to live? If you were part of the Roman Empire and you're a soldier for Rome and you were sent to be the outpost of Judea, you know, greater Israel area, it was the worst assignment you could get. It was the worst place in which to live. So how is it that a no-name carpenter, we know his name as Jesus, living in the worst place in the world, how is it that we know his story? There were no Roman historians that chronicled his story. There were no Jewish historians that chronicled his life. Yet as a whole, this whole world individually knows of and knows more about Jesus than any Roman emperor that ever lived. Think about that. You know, if I said start naming Roman emperors, maybe you'd get one, but everyone knows about Jesus Christ. Virtually in the world, they know something about Jesus Christ. So how is it that an empire as huge as the Roman Empire was, the virtual entire world was the Roman Empire, and as documented and as recorded and as well historically tracked as it was, how is it that today we have virtually nothing to show or tell for the Roman Empire? And yet here is this no-name carpenter named Jesus from the desert. And today, one-third of the world population claims to follow Jesus. That makes no sense. You see, the church is huge around the world. It makes no sense. Now, what's even more incredible, which doesn't make sense, is that for Spartacus in that history, they had, they had just numbers of historians writing this down. Christianity had none. And all they had starting off was a group of about 100 to 125. 100 to 125, and today one-third of the world. It makes no sense. It makes no sense, especially when you realize that all they had, because they didn't have historians documenting, all they had was a story. Eyewitness accounts. Now, that, well, that 100, and we'll talk more about this as we come, get through the, the, the sermon today in the series, but that group of 100 in one day grew by 3,000. We talked about that last week. When one day, 3,000. Not 3,000 around the world. Everybody sent their results in to get it you know, tallied. No, 3,000, one place, one time. Incredible. 
And no banners, no bands, no bulletins, no church buildings, just a movement of people with a story. But then one day along the way in church history, somebody said, you know what, we should build a building. We keep meeting in homes, but the truth of it is we're running out of space. I mean, we were okay when there was 100 of us split up in different numbers. But man, 3,000 and 5,000, it's getting harder to meet together. We should, you know, get a, we should get a building of our own because we keep renting and keep borrowing, and that's a problem. Or it went maybe something like this. Uh, someone visiting Israel, visiting Judea would say, hey, you know what? Right about this area is where, you know, Jesus uh, preached a sermon on the mountainside. Right about this area is where he took some fish and loaves and multiplied them and fed 5,000. We should build something here so you can come and worship in this spot. So they put a tent up. Well, tents don't last. And somebody said, you know, tent's not working. We should put a basic little shelter. So they build a shelter. And then through time, somebody else comes along and says, you know what we really need here? We need to build a church. And if you've ever been on a tour to Israel with me or any other group, you'll know that you'll go to all these places and all of these places have churches. Because someone said, you know, we should document the place and we should build a church right here in this place. Somewhere along the way, those things happen. Now, none of that's wrong, but if you go back and read church history, before long, you find that the church moved from a movement and outwardly focused to being inward focused. Talked about that last week. When you build a building, someone's got to be in charge of the building. If you're in charge of the building, you get to be oversee the scriptures. When you're in charge of the scriptures, you get to oversee the truth. When you oversee the truth, you get to control the people. I mean, that's the way that it went. Now, I've been a pastor for many years now, and I can tell you something with absolute confidence. That in the church, the shift from outward focused to inward focused is quick and unending. Which means you don't one day say, okay, we're going to be outwardly focused, and you never had that discussion again. Nope. Charles Stanley said this, he says, the gravitational pull of every local church is to pull the church back from being outward focused and make it for the insiders. The gravitational pull in any local church is to pull the church back and make the church for the insiders. I've never used that picture. The picture I have painted for people through the years, as I'll teach young pastors in some of their ordination training, I'll say this. When it comes to the idea of outwardly focused, it's like trying to push a, push a bus with no engine up a hill. And that's the pastor's job. The pastor's job is to push the bus up the hill. Because if you don't, it's going to go backwards. There's no engine that's pushing it forward. You're making it go because the natural inclination for church people we've seen through history is to fall back and look inwardly. Churches turn in on themselves very quickly. So today we're going to continue our series that it's, it's more than a building. And let me make a statement um, before we, or a couple of statements before we look at our text this morning. When it comes to the local church, being, being inward focused or outward focused, how the people in that church pray greatly determines what the church will look like in its focus. Now make sure you hear that again. If you want to know what the focus of the church will be, you can usually tell that by looking at how it's Christians who are part of that church family, how they pray. And now we're not going to go through and look at each person and we're not talking about even corporate prayer. We're talking about a general formula and we're going to see this in just a moment. In a moment, we'll look at the prayers of these first century followers of Christ. But honestly, let's think for a moment about most of our prayers. Let's be honest together and transparent. Most of our prayers are stuff that will probably happen anyway. 
or they're a nod to God because we're supposed to be thankful, or it's purely for something that will make our life better in some way, shape, or form. I mean, think about this. We tell our children, say your prayers tonight, and listen to a child's prayer. It goes like this. Well, dear Jesus, thank you for today, and thank you for I live in Vermont. I like it here. And thank you for my brother. I don't like him, but thank you because I have to love him. But he bugs me, but thank you for him. And help me to sleep good tonight, tonight and not have any bad dreams as good dreams about you, Jesus. Now, now stick with me just for a moment. I got to say this because right now you're thinking that my kids pray that prayer and you're telling me it's wrong. My kids prayed the same prayer, so have my grandchildren. So just, just stick with me for a moment. Nothing wrong with it, but we'll see in a moment. And then we're going on vacation, and before we pull the drive, we say, hey, let's just stop and ask God to protect us from our safe travels. I've done that. I've done that for years. I'm sure you've done that. But if I stop and think about it, here I am, Lord, please keep us safe as we drive. And I can't help but think that God might be in a mode sometime where he goes, okay, keep you safe while you drive. Well, first of all, put your seatbelts on. Don't speed. And when you're tired, Stop. And I'm thinking God might be saying, I don't think you need a lot of divine intervention here. Just put the seatbelt on, stop when you're tired, don't speed. Right? Let's be honest with it. That's how it kind of goes. Now, for most of us, the only person that will be better off when we get done praying is usually us or someone who's very, very close to us. Now, listen carefully. Do not quit praying for any of those things. Don't stop. But we need to notice that something's missing. Now, I could do a whole series on prayer. I haven't done one in a while, and I'm kind of looking at that, maybe in the future. I could do a whole series on prayer, but I'll highlight one key piece. We've got to be honest here. Self-centered prayer people, so self-centered prayers, when they all get together in the church, usually start acting like self-centered churches. Self-centered prayer people, when they all get together, form these groups that we call churches that tend to be self-centered and inward-looking as the way they do church. Now, what happens is this. The movement that first began with that first hundred, the movement becomes a building oftentimes full of people who will get on each other's nerves and who all want the church the way it was in the way that they want it. Let me give you a statement real quickly here, and that is this. All of us like the church the way it was when we found it, right? All of us love the church the way it was when we found it. And we know the problem with that, right? Because if it's the way it was when I found it, that says nothing for the next generation coming after us. So what happens is the movement begins to fade and we begin to think about what's happening internally. So last week, 3,000 people, we talked about that, say yes to Jesus. Now, now we're into today's story. So a few days after these 3,000 people say yes to Christ, Peter and John are on their way to the temple. All this is in the book of Acts. You can read the first four chapters of the book of Acts. I can't read all of it for you, so you'll have to read it yourself. But here's how the story goes. Shortly after the 3,000 come to Jesus, Peter and John are on their way to the temple. They would go to the temple because the temple was the spiritual epicenter of all, of all, uh, in, in that time for all the people. So even though they're new followers of Christ, they would still go to the temple. That's the place you went to worship. That's the place you went to pray. So Peter and John are on their way, we assume, to go and to pray and to worship God. And on the way, they come across a lame man. The Bible says it's a man who's lame. Now, by lame, we're not talking the kind of lame that my kids used to say to me, Dad, you're lame. Not that kind of lame. Not the kind of lame that looks like me getting out of a chair after sitting for a half hour. Not that kind of lame. The word lame actually means not able to walk. Not, it doesn't mean walk with difficulty. It doesn't mean walk stiffly. It means the man could not walk. 
And the historical document of Scripture tells us that he has been this way for at least 40 years. The man can't walk. People carry him every day to the, to the temple court area, to the main gate to the temple so that he can beg for money. This is all in the book of Acts. Now, Peter and John come and he sees them and he asks them for money. That's what he does every single day, asking for money. And Peter looks at him and says a very famous line. The kids have put it into a song, says this, listen, silver and gold have I none, but such I have, I'll give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. That's the story. And the Bible tells us the man immediately gets up with help, which I kind of like that one little detail because I just like the fact that it says they reached out and helped him up. Uh, after 40 years, he might need a little help, but didn't need much. For after that, he runs and walks, he dances, he jumps, he skips, and he goes with them to the temple. So he runs and walks and jumps his way with them into the temple. Now, everyone notices this guy and is amazed because, don't forget, maybe he hasn't been there for 40 years, but he's been there for years and years and years and years at the same place every single day. So everyone knows who he is. This is not a case of him healing somebody in the Galilee area where no one in Jerusalem would know who he is. Everyone in the area knows this guy, knows that he has not been able to walk, and now here he is walking with Jesus. So the religious leaders are getting a little nervous about this. So they, um, you know, they're wondering what to do. And while they're all looking at this guy, not the religious leaders, but just the people, they're asking Peter and John, how can this be? So Peter goes into a sermon and he preaches. And the movement is still moving. So the movement went from 100 to 125 to 3,000 plus, and it's now building to four and five and 6,000. The movement is going, and the spiritual leaders are getting very uncomfortable because these guys, Peter and John, and these followers, they're all talking about Jesus being alive. They're all witnesses to the case. And the problem is all these believers are following Jesus and are claiming that he's alive, and they're followers of him, and the number is growing, and it's growing in huge amounts. So they arrest Peter and John and they question them. Now, basically what they say to Peter and John is this. So by whose authority are you doing these miracles? You see, they can't say these miracles are fake because the other thing the story tells us is this guy is standing with them. You can't look and say it didn't happen when there's a guy standing there who says it did happen. And on top of that, you know the guy, so you know what happened. So it's problematic that they have an eyewitness of, of, of being healed himself standing there. So their thought process is, is, by whose authority are you doing these things? Because only a God person can do these. And so they press into the question and Peter basically jumps in with a sermon, gives them the answers. Here's what's going on and what's taking place. And then they respond. Now we pick into our story in Acts chapter 4, verse 13. So when they saw the courage of Peter and John... And they realized that these were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we can't deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And then they called them again and commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or listen to him. Uh, You be the judges. 
As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. After further threats, they let him go. They could not decide how to punish them because all of the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. That would be the warnings and all the threats. And when they heard this, they, praised their, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Lots of stern warnings. They kind of let him have it. Now, if you notice in this story, the lame guy is with them before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin would be all the religious leaders together in one place. And the lame guy is with them. Now, what's interesting about the story is this. If you read the story in its, in its full detail, you'll find that they were actually arrested on the evening, the day before, but the Sanhedrin wasn't going to meet yet, and so they were actually kept in jail overnight. So we don't know if this guy got arrested with them overnight, or he just showed up the next day, but he's standing beside them standing right beside them. This would only be the second day that this guy is standing. And today he goes from standing to bystander. There he is. He's watching the whole thing and he's there with him. Now, because he's standing there, they all know it's him. There's no disputing the fact everyone knows it's him. Everyone knows that it's happened. 40 years. So now they're stuck. So all they can do is to warn them and say, whatever you're doing, stop it. There's the warning. Now, remember that all these people are believing. Now, when we talk about 3,000, the 5,000, the 6,000, some estimates will say that roughly 10 to 20% of the whole population of Jerusalem were followers of Jesus now. So, words out there. This is a real movement taking place. Don't forget, no buildings, no bands, none of that, just a movement of people. Peter and John are released. And they go back to their people and tell them what's happening. And all they, they get together and they immediately pray. That's what the text says. He comes back, they say everything that happens and the people pray. So let's pause for just a moment here and think about this. Imagine what our prayers might be like today in this setting. The religious leaders, your religious leaders had been arrested, had been threatened with the message that they're preaching. They're not to preach and talk about Jesus and they're released and we come back and get that report. I'm thinking it might go something like this. Okay, first of all, Peter and John, no longer can you go out together. We can't afford to lose both of you. So if one of you wants to preach, you preach, the other one will come to safe house. And then you can switch, but we can't afford to lose both of you. On top of that, we've got two brand new Escalades coming, black Escalades. We're going to put you in those. You're going to travel in those. We've got a whole team that we're now you know, kind of pumping and priming, security detail. You're not to go anywhere without your, your security detail. It's very, very critical. Uh, you know, things are going to get tough, potentially get tough. So we're starting to stockpile guns and ammunition. We're stockpiling foods. We've got a lot of dried foods. We can, we can last for about 25 to 50 years because we're putting all things together. If they want to fight, we're going to give them a fight. Now, listen. You may think that sounds crazy. That's exactly the way a lot of Christians are thinking today. Exactly. That's how they're thinking. That might just be our prayer today. And even if not that extreme, still kind of, listen, let's just be wise here. No, just one of you preach at a time. We can't afford to lose both. I mean, that's where we would lean. But here's how they prayed. Verse 24, here's it begins. So when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Here's the first part of the prayer. Sovereign Lord. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. 
It's the starting of the prayer. You say, what does it mean? It means this. In other words, God, before we ask you for anything, we just want to say to you that we know who we're talking to. Before we talk about anything else that's happening in this world, before we talk about anything that's happening in the world around us, before we talk about anything that's happening in our personal lives, we just want to begin by saying, God, we know who we're talking to. We know you are the sovereign one. We know you are holy. And we know that you're not worried. So neither will we be worried. Now, that's a good way to start a prayer, right? Lord, we know that you're sovereign. And we know that you are not anxious. So accordingly, we will not be anxious. Friends, I don't know how your prayers go, but that's a better start to any prayer than, well, thank you for the day and for the blue skies. Blue skies are good. Having a God who's not anxious, better. Especially we can say, because you're not anxious, I don't have to be. Now, the next thing that happens is they actually bring in David from the Old Testament. They bring in an Old Testament um, prophetic word. In verse 25 and 28, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. They said this. They said, Lord, you know, we know history. We know biblical history. We know the prophetic word. And David said that the day would come that the people and the kingdoms would all, were all going to turn. They could turn against you. They would be opposed to you. They would stand against you and your plan and your anointed one. This is a prophetic word. What's basically what they're saying, God, you said this would happen and we saw it happen. We're living right in the middle of it when they all turn. Once again, folks, look around the world around you. Don't be panicked. They're in the middle of what would be the fulfillment of prophecy and they're not panicked. They're saying you said it would happen and it did. But look specifically at this last verse, verse 28. They did, talking about those, those, those leaders, they did what your power and will decided beforehand should happen. That's very, very critical. This is so good and so important for us today. What they're saying is this, Lord, we know that none of these events that we have seen happen, none of them are spiraling out of control. That's really critical. Somehow, Lord, they're saying your plan is bigger than we could imagine. Somehow, Lord, your plan, your sovereign plan, you are a sovereign God, and somehow you even oversaw the crucifixion of our dear friend. And somehow your plan was bigger than our darkest moment. Now, honestly, friends, honestly, when you look at the world happening and what's happening in the world today, around the world, and looking at here, looking at wars around the world, looking at the political agendas and stuff like that, the immorality taking place. When you look at all of it, can you honestly say, are you willing to honestly say, Lord, we know it's not spiraling out of control? Because I got to tell you, a whole lot of Christians today look really panicked and look and act as if it's all spiraling out of control. And yet these first century believers would say, you're sovereign. And we know it's not spiraling out of control. And now we come to their requests. So they've gotten out of the way. The Lord, thank you for the beautiful day in the blue skies. We live in Vermont. Thank you so much. Uh, now, it can, now let's get to it. 
We got the niceties out of the way. Let's get to what we really want to happen. Here's what they pray, verse 29. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak with your word with great boldness. What? You can ask for anything, you ask for boldness? I mean, in the whole list of things you can ask for, your first request is, Lord, help us be bold. First of all, boldness got you into this mess, in case you didn't know that. In case you missed it, your boldness is what's created the problem. On top of all of that, your boldness put you in jail, and your boldness brought all of this together, and all these threats and warnings are because of your boldness. Now, on top of all of that, if you haven't noticed, you're plenty bold already. So don't pray for something you already have. Let's pray for something you don't have, but not boldness. You got the boldness. Really? Boldness. Um, question for all you Christians. When's the last time you actually prayed for boldness? Boldness. Ever? When's the last time you prayed and said, Lord, you help me to speak your word in the right way, in the right timing? at work or with my neighbor or my friends and help me to do so with confidence, not with fear, but with boldness. See, we usually pray, Lord, change their hearts. Lord, he needs Jesus. Lord, help me find the right sermon I can email to them and and something that they, they they can watch and listen to that will turn their heart. Now, that's all okay, but how about, Lord, help me to get in the game in the right way? Help me care more about my neighbor than I do the church music style. Help me care more about the neighbor than the thing in the church that I'm kind of wrapped into now. Help me care more about a lost world. Lord, give me boldness to speak your truth. Now, I want you to make sure you get this. I am not asking you to pray that God would make you weird. We got enough weirdness in the churches already. So we're not asking you to pray, oh, God, make me weird. Oh, God, make me so bold that I'm offensive. To the people around me. Nope. Not asking for that. Oh, Lord, give me, the, give me the, the boldness to put my posters up on the walls that will tell people, you know, don't use foul language here because I'm a follower of Jesus. I believe in the cross. Nope. Bumper sticker, turn or burn. Uh-uh. <laughs> Not helpful. But see, I got to tell you, there are some that will hear me say, pray for boldness, and you'll go, absolutely. Here the hair cause it goes. In this world today, it'd be a better place if Christians would just take a stand. And who knows what the stand is going to be next and what's going to take place. Boldness, Lord, let me say the right words in the right time with absolute confidence. I'm not saying that we are to pray in such a way that we become offensive. I'm saying, would you consider asking God to make you bold with his story, with your story of a changed life? Bold. Now, odd, um, that's the first thing they asked for. They only asked for two things. These first century believers who just had their friends released from jail only asked for two things. The first thing was boldness, And then they come to the second thing in verse 30. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. Now, you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, send healings and signs and wonders. And some of us would go, oh, no, 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 no. See, I'm not one of those people. 
Some of us would say, no, 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 I don't pray that because this isn't one of those churches, right? I mean, this isn't one of those signs and wonders places, right? So the problem is this verse gets a bad rap because of the fact that it's typically only applied when it comes to inward-focused churches or in in in-church settings. That's kind of the the difficulty here. What happens is some of us get a little nervous because we hear about healing signs and wonders. We got this picture of something we've seen on TV or something that we've grown up with. I grew up in a a very Pentecostal church with my grandparents. And let me tell you, it would rock and roll all sorts of church stuff, healing signs and wonders. And some of us get real nervous about that, thinking, are we that kind of church? Well, the problem is some of that thinking goes like this. So they're asking, this can be a pretty scary prayer because we're afraid of what might happen. They weren't afraid of that. Do you know that these, what these people were praying for was this. They were actually praying, Lord, that would you make it so that we are able to go out into our community among people who don't believe And would you allow us to live our lives in such profound ways that when they see us and see how we're living, they would have to say, that has to be God. That's what they're asking. What might happen if all of the people who called Essex Alliance their home or North Avenue their home, what would happen if we all prayed like that? God, would you please stretch out your hand and do something through me in my secular world, in my secular community. Do something through me with my unbelieving friends or family members among people who have been burned by the church and been burned by religion. Do something through me for the people who have every reason to walk away from God and reject everything about the Christian story. Do something through me among my friends that are so smart, God, I got friends that are so smart, that they're so much smarter than me, that when I bring things up, they say things that I don't even know how to answer. They quote people that I've never even heard of, and I don't know how to respond to them. God, I can't convince them, and and I can't reason with them, at least not by my power. God, would you be willing, catch this, to stretch out your hand and do something unusual, not for my benefit, And not for the benefit of the church people, but for the benefit of those who are having a hard time believing this. Imagine if that was part of our daily prayers together. Do you realize that the miracles of Scripture that we see, we just came off this study in Gospel of John, but do you realize that virtually every miracle we see by Jesus and his disciples was done not for a wow moment of the Christians, was not done for a wow moment within the church. But almost every single one of them, I say almost because I didn't go through and do the research for every single one. So I'm covering myself, maybe there's something missing. But everything I can see was done for the sake of those who don't know Jesus. So that when they saw it, they would have to say, well, there's got to be something to this. Because you can't explain that. Every miracle. You see, these first believers were asking God to empower them to go out into their community and to demonstrate the reality of God. Now listen, keep praying for safe travels when you're driving down the road. Um, Thank him for the blue skies and for the mountains of Vermont that we love. Ask him to keep your face from breaking out. 
Ask him to help you lose weight. Ask him to find that wife or to find that husband. Ask him to heal your marriage. Ask him to work and heal your body. Ask him to restore the broken relationships. Ask him any of those things. Please hear this. If it's important to you, it's important to him. So pray them. But don't stop on you. Don't end there. Better yet, don't focus on you. Would you be willing and dare to pray, God, please make me bold. Do something through me that others would take notice of and would have to say, there's got to be something to this God thing because I can't explain that away. After they prayed, go back to our text. Verse 31, after they prayed, the place they were meeting was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Catch that? Place was shaken and they spoke boldly. The believers shared their possessions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any other possessions were their own, but they shared everything that they had. So they say amen, and as soon as they say amen, the place was shaking. People say, what does that mean exactly? It means the place was shaking. It's what we got. The place was shaking. I know, but was it like an earthquake? Sure. Was it just their house shaking? Absolutely. Was the neighbor's house? Whatever you want it to be. Everything was shaking. Everything in their world. Now, we don't know about the rest of the world. We don't have any historical documentation of a massive earthquake and buildings collapsing. We know that where they were, they were shaking. Now listen, we have so many Christians that want to get wrapped up on, ooh, what did that whole shaking thing mean? The importance of the story, it said, is they all spoke the word boldly, which means this, you pray it, God will answer it. That's the point of the story. The point of the story is not to play shaking. Now we like shaking moments. But I can tell you right now, if this place started shaking, many of you would run out the door sure we're having an earthquake. <laughs> so I'm not care about the shaking. What I care about is we, they prayed it, it got answered. What I care about, if I pray it, he'll answer it. And we begin to speak with boldness. But now notice the last thing that jumps out of our text. Along with the boldness, something else happened. There was a sudden outbreak of extreme generosity. Now, I'm going to give you a little point here towards the end. All of a sudden, this group becomes the most generous group you could imagine. Think about this. Now, apply this today. They went and sold all their possessions, and they brought all that money into the church leaders and said, here, just give it out as need be. Let me tell you what. I announce that offering next week and see how many of you show up. Right? I mean, now it gets a little nerve-wracking. But that's what happens. And they did all this not because the pastor announced a series and giving. They did this not because they're watching TV and some guy said, hey, you send me one dollar, God will give you a hundred back. Better yet, give me a thousand dollars and watch what God does. I'm not going to send you that money back, but God will do it. They didn't give because of that. They gave because the Holy Spirit was actually given over control of their life. Uh, in the first service I said can I be honest with you and I gotta stop saying that because it makes it sound like I've been lying to this point but now let me wrap up let me be really honest so I gotta stop using that term so let's be real transparent together 
And let me give you an observation that I can now say after being in ministry for many years with absolute confidence. There is something that I have witnessed through the years of ministry that is undeniable. I've witnessed it not just in some of the Christians in this church, but I've witnessed it in multiple Christians across the board I've worked with and in multiple churches that I've been asked to go in and work with through the years. And that is this statement. Outward focused Christians are the most generous Christians you'll find in the church. After years of doing ministry, I can tell you, outward focused Christians are the most generous Inward-focused Christians, I have found to be the least generous. Now, make no mistake, the inward-focused ones, they'll give to their cause, they'll give to their worship style, they'll give to their project, but not generous. Because don't forget, generosity is not an issue of wealth, it's an issue of the heart. Outward-focused Christians are the most generous people I've ever seen in the church. When the Holy Spirit is given control of someone's life, I would suggest to you that a far better sign of signs and wonders would be the sign of generosity. Because I've been doing long enough to see signs and wonders come and go. I've been doing ministry long enough to see healings come and go. But I can also tell you, I've been doing this long enough to see when generosity shows up, there's something happening right there. When people take their checkbooks and their debit cards and their credit cards and their possessions and they go, it's all yours, that's a sign the Holy Spirit has come into their life. Outbreak of generosity. Makes me wonder how an unbelieving world would basically rate us if they were to rate Christianity based on the generosity of the individual Christians that they knew. Because you see, friends, you don't have to write big checks to a church to demonstrate the generosity of God's Spirit at work in you. So let's wrap up. Let's close. Friends, the way that you pray and the way that I pray is an indication of where our hearts are. An indication of whether we're on mission, His mission, or our mission. I believe that God will answer our prayers when we pray them. So let's make sure we include this prayer in our prayers. Lord, enable me to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and to perform signs and wonders through the name of Jesus. leave it up there for a moment not just so you can read it that you can pray it and so that you can make it part of your prayer you don't have to get every word exact it was like this when you're praying this week every time you pray Lord would you in my life give me boldness with my story and would you stretch out your healing hand would you do signs and wonders through me in such a way that they're not looking at me and they're not, it's not a wow moment for the church, but that I'd be a part of something where they would say, you gotta tell me more because what you're demonstrating is incredible to me. Imagine what happens if believers actually start to pray for the world, but not for them to come to, to Jesus, 
for us to be bold with our story. Stand. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, here's my prayer. As we said, oftentimes we are not here for information. It's transformation we want. We, we don't accomplish anything and we all just walk out, walk out of here a little smarter. But we need to be engaged. I'd like to think that every single person that hears or watches this message is going to get on fire and pray this prayer every day and multiple times a day. Realist, not going to happen. But what I would pray is that there be a group of people. I don't know how big that group is. I, I would take one, but oh, that it might be 10, maybe 15. Maybe we even go back to the first century picture. Maybe it'd be 100, maybe 100 and a quarter of people that would move away from the inward thinking prayer and life and begin to say, Lord, I want to be bold for you. Use your healing hand to do signs and wonders for me. The people around me will see that you exist. And Lord, as I'm asking for one or two or a handful, I want to be one of them. Count me in. Dismiss us in your grace today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.